Today I am speaking with Rene Deresta. Rene is the Director of Research at New Knowledge and the Head of Policy at the nonprofit Data for Democracy. And she investigates the spread of hyperpartisan and destructive narratives across social networks. She's co-authored a recent report on the, the Russian disinformation campaign, both before and since the 2016 presidential election. And uh, we talk about all that. She's advised politicians and policymakers, members of Congress, the State Department. Her work has been featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and, and many other outlets. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a Truman National Security Project Security Fellow. She also holds degrees in computer science and political science from SUNY Stony Brook. As you'll hear, Renee was recommended to me by my friend and former podcast guest, Tristan Harris, who recommended her as an authority on just what happened with the Russian influence campaign in recent years. And uh, Renee did not disappoint. So, without further ado, I bring you Renee Deresta. I am here with Renee Deresta. Renee, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. I was introduced to you through our mutual friend, Tristan Harris. How do you know Tristan? Tristan and I met in uh, mid-2017. I had written an essay about bots, and, uh, and he read it. And he shared it to Facebook, funny enough. And uh, we discovered that we had about 60 mutual friends, even though we'd never met. And uh, we met for breakfast a couple days later. And he wanted to talk about what I was seeing and the things I was writing about and how they intersected with his vision of, of social platforms as having profound impacts on individuals. My uh, research into how social platforms are having profound impacts on policy and society. And uh, we had breakfast, hit it off, and I think had breakfast again a couple days later. So yeah. uh, fast friends. Yeah, well, Tristan is great. He's So many people will recall he's been on the podcast, and I think he's actually been described as the conscience of Silicon Valley, just in terms of how he has been sounding the alarm on the toxic business model of social media in particular. So uh, you touched on it there for a second, but give us a, a snapshot of your background and how you come to be thinking about the problem of bots and also just the specific problem we're going to be talking about of the Russian disinformation campaign and hacking of democracy. Yeah, so it's sort of a convoluted um, way that I got to uh, to investigating Russia and disinformation. It actually started back in 2014. I became a mom, and I was uh, I just moved to San Francisco a little bit prior, and I had to get my kid onto a preschool waiting list, which is not always easy. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> not not like a nice preschool, just like a preschool. And I uh, and I and I. I knew California had some anti-vax problems, and I started Googling for the data sets. The California Depart Department of Public Health has uh, public data sets where they tell you vaccination rates in schools. Anyway, I looked, and I thought, God, this is a, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And um, lo and behold, a couple months later, the Disneyland measles outbreak, in fact, did happen, and I reached out to my congressman. It was the first time I'd ever done that, and I said, hey, you know, we should have a law for this now. We should, we should eliminate the vaccine opt-outs. And they told me they were introducing something. So I said, great, I'd, I'd love to help. You know, I have a data science background. I can maybe be useful as an analyst. And what wound up happening was that there was this extraordinary um, thing as the, as the bill took shape, which was that the legislators were finding that polling in their districts was about 85% positive. Like people really liked 
the idea of eliminating what were called personal belief exemptions, the right to just kind of voluntarily opt your kids out. But the social media conversation was like 99% negative. It was very hard to even find a single positive tweet or positive Facebook post expressing support for this bill. And so I started looking into why that was and discovered this entire kind of ecosystem of what was this hybrid between almost activism and manipulation. So there were very real activists who had very real points of view. And then they were doing things like using automation. So the reason that they were dominating the Twitter ecosystem was that they were actually turning on automated accounts. So they were just kind of spamming the hashtags so that anytime you search for anything related to the bill in the hashtag, you would find their content. So this is kind of, you know, this is sort of like a um, guerrilla marketing tactic. And I thought, how interesting that they were using it. And then realized that there were like fake personas in there. There, <laughs> there were people pretending to be from California who weren't from California. How are you figuring that out? How were you assessing a fake persona? Oh, they, were, uh, they were created within days of the bill being introduced, and they, were, um, they existed solely to talk about this bill. And then I discovered these communities on Facebook, things with names like Tweet for Vaccine Freedom, where there were actually moderators in the group who were posting instructions on for people from out of state how they could get involved. And the answer was create a persona, change your, your location ID to somewhere in California, and then start tweeting. So they sort of, you know, kind of um, at the time it seemed brazen. Now it seems so quaint. But these tactics to shape consensus, to really create the illusion that there was a mass consensus in opposition to this bill. And so a very small group of people using social media as an amplifier were able to achieve dominance, to, to just really own the conversation. And it led me to think this is, a, this is fascinating because what we have here is um, this form of activism where there is kind of like a real core and then there's some manipulative tactics layered on top of the real core. But if you're not looking for the manipulation, you don't see it. And most people aren't going looking, you know, they're not digging into this stuff. So it was a kind of a first indication that our policy conversations, our social conversations were not necessarily reflective of, you know, kind of the reality on the ground, the, the stuff that we were still seeing in the polls. It was, a, it was an interesting experience. And then a couple months after that law was all, you know, all done, I got a call from uh, from the, some folks in the Obama administration in the digital service saying, hey, you know, we've, we've read your research, because I, I published about this in Wired. Hey, we've read your research. We'd like you to come down and, uh, and, and look at some of the stuff that's going on with ISIS. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about, about ISIS or, or about terrorism, candidly. When they said, no, no, you have to understand the tactics are identical. The same kind of, you know, kind of owning the narrative, owning the hashtags, reaching out to people, pulling them into secret Facebook groups. The idea that the terrorists were actually following some of these kind of radicalization pathways, these efforts to kind of dominate the conversation. Anytime there was a real world event related to ISIS, they would get things trending on Twitter. And so people in the administration wanted to understand how this was happening and what they could do about it. So that was how I wound up getting more involved in this in sort of a more um, official capacity. It was uh, first kind of conspiracy theorists and terrorists, and then, and then Russia was. Um, Russia was following the, the 2016 election. There was a sense that, again, there had been these bizarre bot operations and they were far more nefarious and sophisticated than anyone had realized. And we had to do a formal investigation. Mm. Well, before we get into the Russia case specifically, how do you view the, the role of social media in this? Do you distinguish between the culpability or the negligence 
of Twitter versus Facebook versus YouTube? Are there bright lines between how they have misplayed this or um, are they very similar in the role they're playing? I think that, you know, they've kind of, they've really evolved a lot since 2015. In the early conversations about ISIS, there was a, you know, just to kind of take you back to, to 2015, the attitude wasn't, oh, God, we've got terrorists on our platform. <laughs> Let's get ahead of this, right? It was, um, you know, Facebook, to its credit, took that attitude from day one. It was just, this is a violation of our terms of service. We take down their content. We find them. We shut them down. YouTube would kind of take down the beheading videos as they popped up. Twitter, if you go back and you read articles from 2015, as you know, I've been doing a lot of um, going back and looking at the conversations from that time, you see a lot of sympathy for Twitter and this idea that if you take down ISIS, what comes next? This is a slippery slope. And, yes. you know, <laughs> and it was interesting. Interesting, interesting koan to ponder. Right. Well, <laughs> like what, Satan. <laughs> so, it was, you know, well, I mean, if we take down ISIS, I mean, who knows what we have to take down next? You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And, you know, and I would be sitting there in these rooms hearing these conversations saying, like, these are beheading videos, you guys. These are terrorist recruiters. These are people who are killing people. What the hell is this conversation? I, I, I can't get my head around it. But that's where we were in 2015. And, and, you know, go back and read things that people like the, you know, entities like the EFF were putting out. And you'll see that, that this was a, a topic of, of deep concern. What would, you know, what would happen if we were to silence ISIS? Would we inadvertently silence things that were tangentially related to ISIS? And then from there, would we silence, you know, certain types of, uh, of, of expression of Islam and so on and so forth? And, and it, was a, it was a very different kind of mindset back then. I think that the context has changed so much over the last year, in part because of stuff like what Tristan is doing and the tech hearings. And I think that 2016 was almost like the sort of, you know, Pearl Harbor that made people realize that, you know, holy shit, this actually does have an impact. And, and uh, maybe we do have to do something to get ahead of this because everybody's doing it now. Reading recent articles specifically about Facebook makes me think that, it, it, that there is just an insuperable problem here. You can't put enough people on it to appropriately vet the content, and the algorithms don't seem to be up to it. And so the mistakes that people plus algorithms are making are so flagrant. I mean, they're preserving, you know, the the accounts of known terrorist organizations. They're deleting the accounts of, you know, Muslim reformers or ex-Muslims who simply say something critical about the faith. I mean, there's just People can't figure out which end is up, apparently. And once you view these platforms as publishing platforms that are responsible for their content, it's understandable that you would want to, given the kinds of things we're going to talk about. But I don't know how they solve this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Tristan and others have done a lot of work on changing the conversation around culpability and accountability. and. I think that, again, in 2015, 2016, you know, there would be references to things like the CDA 230, the Communication Decency Act, Section 230, that gives them the right to moderate, which they chose to use as the right to not moderate. And the norms, I would say, that, that evolved in the industry around not wanting to be seen as being censors in any way at the time, which meant that they left a whole lot of stuff up and didn't really do very much digging. And then now the shift, kind of the pendulum swinging hard in the other direction, which is leading to allegations that 
that conservatives are being censored and allegations that, per your point, unsophisticated moderation, I, I think there was an article about this in the New York Times over the weekend, has led to some disasters where they take down people fighting extremists in Myanmar and link yeah. the extremists up. So yeah, there's a, I, I think that the recognition that they are culpable, that fundamental change in the attitudes of the public has led them to, to start to try to take more responsibility. And right now it's being done in something of kind of a ham-handed way. Yeah, well, they're certainly culpable for the business model that I have kind of a less of a, a view of Twitter here because Twitter doesn't seem to have its business model together in the way that Facebook does. But clearly Facebook, you know, per Tristan's point, that their business model promotes outrage and sensationalism preferentially. And the fact that they continue to do that is, is just selecting for these crazy conspiratorial divisive voices. And then they're trying to you know, kind of curate against those, but they're still amplifying those because it's their business model. I mean, at least that's the way it seems as of my recent reading of the New York Times. Is that still your understanding of the bad geometry over there? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. So I see a lot of, um, you know, I, I try to focus on the, the disinformation piece. There are some people who work on privacy, some who think about monopoly, you know, a lot of different grievances with tech platforms these days. But I see a lot of the, the manipulation specifically, I would say, comes from a combination of three things. There's this mass consolidation of audiences on a handful of very few platforms. And that's just because as the web moved from these kind of, you know, decentralization, where there, there's always been manipulation and disinformation and lies on the internet, right? But the mass consolidation of audiences onto a very small handful of platforms meant that if you were going to run a manipulative campaign, much like if you were going to run a campaign for, you know, Pepsi, you only had to really blanket five different sites. And then the second piece was the precision targeting, right? So the ads business model, the thing that you're referring to, these are attention brokers, which means they make money if you spend time on the platform. So they gather information about the user in order to show the user things that they want to see so that they stay on the platform. And then also as they're gathering that information, it does double duty in that they can use it to, to help advertisers target them. And then I would say the last piece of this is the algorithms that you're describing and the fact that for a very, very long time now, they've been very easy to game. And when we think about you know, what you're describing, the idea that that outrage gets clicks, that's true. And the algorithm, particularly things like the recommendation engines, they're not sophisticated enough to know what they're showing. So there is no sense of downstream harm or psychological harm or any other type of harm. All they know is this content gets clicks. And this content drives engagement. And if I show this content to this person, they're going to stay on the platform longer. I can, you know, mine them for more data. I can show them more ads. So it's, it's beneficial to them to do this. And I think one of the interesting challenges here is as we think about recommendation engines, that's where there is, in my opinion, a greater sense of culpability and a, and a greater requirement for responsibility on the part of the platforms. And that's because they've moved into acting as a as a, as a curator, right? They're, they're saying, you should see this. And the recommendation engines in particular often surface things that are not necessarily, you know, <laughs> what we would necessarily want them to be showing. This is how you get at things like, you know, my anti-vaxxers, right? The, uh, I had an anti-vax uh, account, an account that, that was active in anti-vax groups. And it didn't engage with any of the people. It just sort of sat in the groups and, you know, kind of observed. And it was being referred into Pizzagate groups. 
Mm-hmm. So long before Pizzagate was a matter of national conversation, long before that guy showed up with a gun and shot up a pizza place thinking that Hillary Clinton was running a sex dungeon out of the basement, these personas that were prone to conspiratorial thinking, the recommendation engine recognized that there was a correlation in people who were prone to conspiracy, you know, conspiracy type A would be interested in Pizzagate, which we can call conspiracy type B. And then soon enough, QAnon started to show up in the uh, in the recommendation engine. And so the, the question becomes, you know, where where is the line? You know, do what the, the platform is actively making a recommendation here. These accounts have never gone and proactively searched for Pizzagate and QAnon. They're, they're being suggested to them. So where is the responsibility? Should we have the recommendation engine not surface that type of content or is even making that suggestion? a form of censorship. This, these are the kinds of conversations I think we'll start to see more of in 2019. Okay, well, let's focus on the topic at hand, which is Russian interference in, I guess, democracies everywhere, but specifically the, the U.S. presidential election in 2016 and the recent report that you helped produce on this, which is, runs to 100 pages. And I'll put a link to that where I post this on my blog. First, I just got a big picture, sort of political partisan question. It seems to me that many people, certainly most Trump supporters, continue to doubt whether Russia interfered in anything in 2016. And this is just, you know, this is fake news. Is there any basis for doubt about that at this point? Nope. This is just crystal clear as a matter of what our intelligence services tell us and as a matter of what people like you can ascertain by just studying online behavior. It happened. There's, there's really nothing else to say about it. The intelligence agencies know it happened. The foreign governments know it happened. Researchers know it happened. The platforms acknowledge it happened. I mean, you know, sure, there can be some small group of people who continues to you know, live like ostriches, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And what do you do with the charge that we do the same thing all the time everywhere ourselves? So there's, not, there's really nothing to complain about here. Well, we, I mean, we probably do it to each other at this point, right? There's uh, evidence of that as far back as 2016, you know, some things that, um, insinuations about Alabama, there's a whole lot of, lot of, you know, evidence that domestic groups can and do do this as well. And, and that's why what I, what I keep going to when I talk about this topic publicly is that this is not a partisan issue. This is not a one, you know, one state, uh, you know, one, one foreign actor interfering in one moment issue. This is sort of just an ongoing global challenge at this point. If we're speaking specifically about Russia and whether that happened, I, I think that uh, it's, it's incontrovertible truth at this point. Yeah, and the other thing that seems incontrovertible is that it happened to favor the election of Trump in many obvious ways and, and in many surprising ways that we'll go into. But it, they were not playing both sides of this. This was not a pro-Clinton campaign. And in your report, you break down three ways which their meddling influence things and or, or attempted to influence things. We're going to be talking about one of them, but, but I'll just run through those three quickly and then we'll focus on one. The first is there were attempts to actually hack online voting systems. And, you know, that, that's been reported on elsewhere. Secondly, there, were, there was just this very well-known and consequential cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee and the leaking of that material through WikiLeaks. And that was obviously to the great disadvantage of the Clinton campaign. Then finally, and this is what we're going to focus on, there was just the, the social influence 
based on the disinformation campaign of the sort that you're you've just described, using bots and fake personas and targeting various groups. And I, this was surprising that when you get into the details of who was targeted and the kinds of messages that were spread. It's fairly sophisticated and you know amazingly cynical. There's a kind of morbid fun you can imagine these people were having at our expense in how they played one community against another in American society. So let's focus on this third method. And this was coming from something called the Internet Research Agency. What, what we'll call them the IRA, as you do in your report. What is the IRA and uh, what were they doing to us? So the IRA is, uh, you could think of them a little bit as a um, social media marketing agency meets an intelligence agency. So what they did to a large extent was they kind of built these pages, they built these communities, they built these personas, and they pretended to be Americans, uh, Americans of all stripes. So some were Southern Confederates, some were Texas secessionists, some were Black liberationists, it really, they, they had all of these personas, they really ran the gamut. What they were doing was they were creating pages to appeal to tribalism. So a lot of the, a lot of the conversation about the IRA over the last two years has referred to this idea that they were exploiting divisions in society. And that's true. But the data set that I had access to, which was provided by the tech platforms to the Senate Intelligence Committee, was the first time that uh, anybody saw the full scope, you know, through the full two and a half years. And what we saw there was not a media marketing, you know, meme shit poster type agency that was just throwing out memes haphazardly and, and trying to exploit divisions. What they were trying to do was grow tribes. So a little bit, a little bit different. The IRA originally started as a entity that was designed to propagandize to Russian citizens, to Ukrainian citizens, to people who were in Russia's sphere of influence. And the early stuff in the data set, Twitter provided the earliest possible uh, information of the, of the material the companies gave us, was actually Russian language tweets talking about the invasion of Crimea. It was talking about, you know, it was creating conspiracy theories about the downing of the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. So the early activities of the IRA were very much focused inward, focused domestically. And then around 2015, they turned their energy to the United States in what the Mueller and some of the Eastern District Court indictments have been referring to as Project Lakta. So Project Lakta was when the, uh, the effort to grow these American tribes really started. This precedes the election, right? So this precedes Trump's plausible candidacy. And there was still this goal of amplifying tribalism in the U.S., yeah, so the goal was to uh, to create these. So this was a long game. This was not a a short term social media operation to to screw around with an election. This was a long game to develop extended relationships, trusted relationships with Americans. And what they did was they created these pages. So an example would be Heart of Texas was a page that really amplified notions of Texas pride. Almost all of their pages, an LGBT page, pages targeting the black community, pages targeting Confederate aficionados, all of these pages were designed around the idea of pride and pride in whatever particular tribe they were targeting. So the vast majority of the content, particularly in 2015 in the early days, was, you know, we are LGBT and proud. We are Texas and proud, you know, Texans and proud. We are proud descendants of Confederates. 
And so this idea that you should have pride in your tribe was what they reinforced over and over and over and over again. And then you would see them periodically slide in content that was either that was either political or divisive. Most sometimes that would be about othering another group. So we are, you know, some of the um, the, the the content targeting the black community in particular did this. This country is not for us. We're not really part of America. We are, we exist outside of America. And so a lot of uh, a lot of exploitation of real grievances tied to real news events. So constant drumbeat of pride plus leveraging real harms to exploit feelings of alienation. Sometimes you would see them do this with political content. So as the primaries heated up, that was where you started to see them weaving in their support for candidate Trump, weaving in their opposition to candidate Clinton. I'm looking at your report now and I'm seeing this list of themes. And I'll just tick off some of these because it's, again, rather diabolical and clever how they were playing both sides of the board here. So they would focus on you know, the black community and Black Lives Matter and, and issues of police brutality, but also they would amplify pro-police, Blue Lives Matter pages. You had anti-refugee messages and you know immigration border issues, Texas culture, as you said, Southern culture, Confederate history, various separatist movements, Muslim issues, LGBT issues, meme culture, red pill culture, gun rights in the Second Amendment, pro-Trump and anti-Clinton, and more anti-Clinton in the form of pro-Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein, Tea Party stuff, religious rights, Native American issues. And all of this is just sowing divisiveness and conflict. Although it, it really does seem there, there was to a surprising degree, a focus on the black community. Do you have more information about or, or just an opinion about why that was such an emphasis for them? Yeah. So there were about, there were 81 Facebook pages, 133 Instagram accounts. Of the 81 Facebook pages, 30 focused on the black community. Now, there were, there were other pages that focused on other kind of traditionally left-leaning groups, as, as you mentioned, uh, Muslims, um, Native Americans, Latinos. So there was, you know, there were other kind of non-black lefty pages. Before we go on, Renee, I just, so it, those numbers don't sound very large. So 81 Facebook pages sounds like not even a drop in the ocean. I think we should give some sense of the scale of, of what happened here. Yes. So there were 81 Facebook pages. I think there were about 62,000 posts across them. There were 133 Instagram accounts, 116,000 posts across them. There were about 187 million engagements on the Instagram content and another 75 million engagements on the Facebook content. And an engagement is like a like or a share or a comment. The pages, to, to be totally, totally clear, they had what I would call like a long tail. Like 20 of them were successful enough that they had, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of followers. And then a lot of the remainder, the long tail, was just crap. They were just failed pages. And so one of the things that was actually interesting was you could see them in the data set pivoting those pages, so pivoting their failures, going in there and actually and, and saying like, okay, well, one example is the Army of Jesus page. A, a lot of people have seen some of the memes of like Hillary fighting Satan. There were about 900 posts by that account before it found Jesus. It started as a Kermit the Frog meme page. 
you know, memes of like Kermit sipping tea and stuff. And they didn't seem to get enough traction there. They pivoted it to a Simpsons meme page. And it was, uh, you know, sharing these kind of ridiculous Homer Simpson memes, again, just like messing around with American culture, seeing what stuck. When that didn't stick, all of a sudden it became a religious page devoted to Jesus. That seemed, they seemed to have then kind of like nailed it. You start to see the memes doing things like like for Jesus. When you do something like, say, like like for Jesus, share for Jesus, they're getting people to share their content organically. So you actually see them kind of hitting their stride with uh, standard kind of tactics of social media audience growth with examples like this, this Army of Jesus account. So there's, it's absolutely true that many of their pages were complete failures that had no lift. But then some of their pages were actually, if you go and you uh, look at the audience reach using things like CrowdTangle and you look at their engagements versus the engagements for other conservative pages or other black media, you do see them kind of popping up in the you know, top 20, top 50 in terms of engagement overall. So when, you know, am, am I saying this, these were like the best possible pages for this content for these audiences? No. But what they did do was they achieved substantial success with some of them and they used their successful pages to direct people to their other pages. So the black community was particularly, they did this particularly, uh, this was a, I can't say effectively necessarily because I, I can't see the conversion data. I know that they showed people these other memes. I don't know if people converted to the page for these other memes. But what they were doing was they were saying, if you like this content from our page Blackstagram that you're following, here's some other, you know, hey, look at this other group called Williams and Calvin. Now, of course, there's no disclosure that the Internet Research Agency is also running Williams and Calvin. And then they're saying, look at this other content from this page called Blacktivist. Look at this other content from this page called Nefertiti's Community. So a lot of this kind of cross-pollination of audiences in an attempt to push people so that if they're following one of their accounts, one of their pages, they're inundated with posts from the others. Right. And they're also amplifying legitimate pages that are you know, highly polarized in their message. So what's cagey here is that they're not only creating their own fake partisan accounts, they're amplifying the extreme fringe, both right and left, of real partisan accounts. Yes. So they're, and sometimes they're amplifying it and keeping the brand of those pages. So you see them sharing content from Turning Point, for example, on the right. Other times they go and they take Turning Point memes and they slap their own logo on on top of it and just kind of pretend it's theirs. They just sort of repurpose it. So they're doing this combination of getting content that they see getting lift on other pages, repurposing it and pushing it out as theirs. Other times they're just straight up uh, amplifying the other page. Sometimes they're even, particularly in the black community, tagging the other page in, probably in hopes that they're going to then in turn get amplified and shared by the other page, which we did see. I think it was the other 99%, I think, shared a few of their, a few of their memes related to their Black Lives Matter page. So in an election that was swung by something like 70,000 votes, tens of millions of impressions or engagements seems potentially significant. Why the focus on the black community? Is it, was it just to suppress a reliably democratic voting pool for the election? Or was there some, do you have more thoughts about how that played a role specifically with the election? Yeah, so in the related to the uh, the black community in the election specifically again, so they had these long developed relationships by this point, a little over a year maybe, related just to pride and culture. And then you would see 
the way that the language that they would use was as black people, we can't vote for Hillary Clinton. So in other words, we've created this tribe, we've created this community as half a million people on the page. There's thousands and thousands of comments every day. Presumably, you know, I can't see the comments. That wasn't the data provided. But presumably these people are engaging with the page and, you know, thinking that this is a real black media, black community page. And so it's framed as as black people, we can't do this. And so they the suppression narratives were around opposition to Hillary Clinton. So I would say this wasn't so much pro-Trump as anti-Clinton. They were pro-Trump, but they were universally anti-Clinton. So even on the left, the content was anti-Clinton. And so the narratives to the black community in particular were, this isn't our country. We need to sit this one out. White politicians don't care about us, and we should be voting for Jill Stein if we vote for anybody. And they actually would point to the fact that, a couple of times they pointed to the fact that I believe Jill Stein had, uh, had an African-American uh, VP candidate. So they would occasionally, you know, try to um, try to go that angle. But most of the time, it was just anyone but Clinton. Right. So it was voter suppression on the left that made sense of this. Did it precede the election by by years? Was the, the focus on the black community? Did it roll all the way back to the beginning of the data in, in 2015? The earliest pages weren't targeting the black community. The earliest pages were going more for the religious communities and the right. I think that they possibly just found that easier to work with, easier to get lift from. The theme there was really anger. It was just profoundly angry content, just grievance, 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 grievance. The, they, they kind of turned on their pages um, somewhat sporadically. They would also turn on pages in response, to, in response to events. So, for example, let's talk about the WikiLeaks data dump. So, as you mentioned at the start, the GRU had this hack. They had these emails and they laundered the emails through WikiLeaks. They gave them to WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks was, you know, doing these kind of drips. So what the IRA would do, the social media arm of this operation, was they would socialize Julian Assange a couple weeks before a dump. So they would talk about how trustworthy he was and what a freedom fighter he was and how he was really doing the work of exposing uh, Clinton and the Democrats as the horrible, you know, warmongering criminals that they were. And so they would push out these narratives about Assange to the black community, the left community, and the right-leaning community. The right-leaning community, of course, had already bought in. They didn't have to do very much work there. So they just worked on, like, amping it up and, and creating rage. And you saw this a lot on Twitter, like, really pushing hashtags like spirit cooking and some of the more conspiratorial stuff. Really going after Comey on Twitter also, and particularly as they became irate that, that he wasn't, you know, indicting Clinton for her emails or whatever. But the socialization of WikiLeaks, you see them leading into the dump, creating this, this base of trust for Assange. And then when the dump comes out, they pick it up and they amplify it. This also included things like games, like Pokemon Go, right? It was not just bots and fake personas on social media. Yeah, they touched every, I mean, everything they could. So when you're creating a... Um, if you think about it from the standpoint of, you know, you have a media property and, and you are, you know, in a couple of different places, right? So they're doing the same thing. I can use the example of their Black Matters site. Black Matters wasn't even one of their most successful, but it was one of the few where they made the effort of creating a website for it. And then they created a SoundCloud for it. They created a Tumblr. They created an Instagram account. Like, you name it, this thing was everywhere, which is kind of what you would expect to see if it's, you know, from a reputable media brand, right? They're, most, most media brands are everywhere. They touch all social channels. And so the IRA did the same thing. 
So their use of Pokemon Go, their use of Vine, their use of like any kind of small platform that just kind of popped up, you see them going after and experimenting with what can we do with this? And with Pokemon Go, which I'll admit I've never played, but they would uh, they were advocating that people name their Pokemons after uh, black youth lost to gun violence. And they were promoting this, you know, take pictures of it, take screenshots, whatever. I don't know if you take screenshots on Pokemon. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> but, uh, but they were putting this stuff out on Tumblr. So reaching out to a, kind of like a younger audience, you know, the, the audience that's on Tumblr generally skews a bit younger. Meme culture type saying like, hey, go play Pokemon, do this thing, screenshot it and send it to us. They had YouTube contests too, where they had a thing called Pee on Hillary, where they, uh, they started a channel and they solicited videos of people peeing on a picture of Hillary Clinton. And, uh, you know, the YouTube data set had some of that. So right. um, there you go, right? All sorts of um, I mean, One has to picture is, is a, basically the equivalent of a comedy writer's room in Hollywood just having fun all day long trying to screw up democracy. I'm sure they had a grand time. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you want me to go into this, but a lot of the stuff that came out in 2017, so after the election, was them screwing around with the idea that anyone could possibly think Russia was involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had some really fantastic memes, and I'm, I'm reading them, going through it. Yeah, I went through 200,000 of them or something, 175,000 manually, and they're funny. That's the thing that I think, I think that a lot of the stuff that came out were these like kind of bad English, like crappy memes, and there were definitely some of those in there. But then there were ones that they either repurposed or just, you know, somebody in the writer's room just nailed it, uh, where they're saying like, oh, my speedometer broke, must be the Russians, or, you know, the left thinks I'm a Russian troll, like, little do they know, and then like a picture of like a fat 400-pound guy, you know, remember if you remember like during the election, the, the whole like who were the hackers kind of right, uh, narrative right. was playing out. So you see them referencing the kind of stuff that plays well with, in this case, a right-wing audience or a Trump-supporting audience where they're actually mocking the very idea of Russian interference themselves. And you have to think that they must have just been having an absolute field day with this. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know anything about these people? I mean, do we know their ages? Has anyone admitted to being part of the IRA and spoken, or this is still just a black box? No, there have been a couple of really uh, excellent leaks written up in, in Russian press, actually. It's, I think, RBK or RBC, depending on the pronunciation. I unfortunately forgot which Americanization they use, but there was a really great article where a couple trolls leaked what they had done and just talked about, they make it sound like a, you know, social media, like a, like a social media intern's job almost where it's like, well, we had a quota. This is how many posts we had to hit and we had to get this many responses. And, you know, and it's interesting because one of the accounts that I was looking at, I saw it change two or three times right around May. Uh, it changed its focus completely every year in May. And I thought like, oh, I bet that guy just like didn't make his numbers. And, you know, so it was interesting to me to see that maybe their year in review is in May and they decided like, okay, time to jettison this one and and start with the next. The uh, people were mostly um, kind of millennials, I would say, like 20s, 30s. And you do see the, you know, thinking that they're just patriotic trolls is how how Putin referred to them. Yeah. And you have examples of the memes that you uh, studied in your report. And it's, I mean, it's yeah, you, when you step away from how toxic all this is, it really is not hard to empathize with these people and understand how much fun they were having doing this. I mean, it's just, you know, they're creating fairly clever, divisive, funny memes that are gaining traction and uh, having their intended effect. 
you've got Jesus wearing a MAGA hat. We've got Hillary Clinton, you know, wearing cornrows. And the title is When You Need the Black Vote. So many of Clinton's photos are just made to order for this. I mean, her, you know, wide rictus laugh that can be made to look evil or crazy. The fact that we can be so successfully gamed by this as a society is really troubling, however. And how does this stop? What basis for hope do you have now having analyzed this? I think that one of the things that my, my kind of takeaway is that the, the things that really made me stop and say, like, oh, my God, were actually the post-targeting individuals. So I think I included some of them in there. The, you know, the one about if you're having a problem with masturbation, call our hotline or DM us. There was a lot of stuff like that. DM us, DM us, DM us, right? And, and that's where you realize, like, this wasn't just some meme shitposting. This was like an intelligence operation. So they were exploiting individuals. And, and so you see them reaching out to individuals to bring this operation into the real world. So one of the things that, that they did was they created events and they created protests and they just fabricated protests out of nothing. They had, there was an event in Texas where they had a pro-Muslim and a pro-Texas secession demonstration on the same day in the same place, literally across the street from each other. And they managed to like, you know, conjure up these protests, even though like no human being was actually in charge because they put up a Facebook event. They got people on their page to like it, say they were going to go. People showed up. Yeah, they realized nobody's in charge and nobody's there. But by that point, you have two kind of conflicting groups, literally with signs on opposite sides of the street. And if you go and you read the Texas news from that day, there were, you know, there was kind of like a small skirmish. So they're doing things to get this out of the online world and get this into the real world. They, they were selling merchandise. So you could wear your tribal affiliation literally across your chest with these big, bold Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter type materials that they were, uh, that they were producing and selling. And presumably, the you know, second order effect of that, you get some money from the sales, you gather some information about your customers, you can retarget them online if you sell it through your, through your site. There's so many different layers to this in which they were going after people and manipulating people. And that's where I think it's not just showing people some memes. It's actually what do you do when you realize that infiltrating activist communities is the whole goal? And it has been a goal, of course, of Russia since the Cold War. This is not a new tactic. It's just that now they're able to do it kind of even more remotely. You don't even have to send a spy and <laughs> do it in person. You just communicate over Facebook DMs and and, you know, we've seen some of these come out. I didn't have any Facebook Messenger data in what I looked at, but you see it in the Mueller indictments and in the Eastern District Court indictments where they're actually like laundering ads through people now. And they're saying, hey, I lost my Facebook ads account. Listen, could you run some ads for me? Or, hey, I, I want to teach self-defense classes to black people so they can be protected at protests. Our page Black Fist is looking for a fitness instructor. Can you do it? And they actually find some guy who, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, fitness gig. Sure, totally and does it and is receiving PayPal payments from someone in Russia. So this is where you start to see this is not just a challenge of like can social media find inauthentic accounts. This becomes like how are activist communities, how are people who are kind of inherently tribal thinking about the people who are coming into their community and trying to nudge things in a particular direction? That's where I'm actually afraid of the denial, the people who think that this is all made up and all, you know, just stuff that happens to other people, because we need that vigilance, since this is <laughs> much more than just a media problem at this point.
Yeah. Well, it's really information warfare on some level. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that's too strong a word for it. I mean, it's like when you think of what the goal is, what is the actual intent? How much division would they want to provoke in our society? There's basically no limit to that. Let's just light matches everywhere and see if something will burn. Do you have a sense of what the path forward is here, apart from whatever social media can do to get its house in order? I'm glad you think of it as information warfare also, because for a long time, I think that I, you know, I would say that I wrote an essay called The Digital Maginot Line, where I kind of alluded to this, actually, the idea that the adversary sees it as information warfare. So I don't think that we're doing ourselves any favors by pretending this is just some peacetime governance problem where social media could moderate a little bit better, because that's not what this is. And I think, you know, I, I've been encouraged by Senator Warner from Virginia. He's uh, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee. And, you know, he's put out a number of calls to regulate social media on, on a variety of axes, you know, privacy, monopoly. There's a couple of uh, different areas that he and others are looking at. Regulating ads, being more, regu sorry, regulating disclosures of who is paying for the ads, looking at things like are there, you know, what can we do to regulate the social platforms? But I think a lot of what we're doing is we're still thinking about this as um, there's this broad bucket of complaints against social media, much of which is deserved. But the challenge is how do you get at the information warfare piece of this, where we don't presently have anything that remotely resembles a deterrent? Excuse me, I think you had asked me if we were doing this also. And, and the answer is, I don't actually think we are. I have not seen any evidence of that. And there's a, a lot of you know, I'll take you back to the ISIS days where some of the work that I was asked to do was think about how should the government respond to this. And I don't know how many people will remember this, but the State Department briefly had a Twitter account and it tweeted at ISIS terrorists and it used this hashtag, think again, turn away. And that was sort of the height of, of countermeasures, really, <laughs> was, uh, was some guys in the State Department tweeting at terrorists. And those of us who were kind of brought in you know, from Silicon Valley to look at this problem and make some suggestions about how maybe, you know, what does a whole of government approach look like in an era of information warfare? Realizing that, you know, we're like, why are you tweeting at terrorists? And what is your metric for success here? And they would kind of say like, well, you know, how many death threats we get or like do any of the accounts like turn off? And it was just clear that there was no strategy there. I think that we really missed the boat on getting our getting our our heads around this problem as much bigger than one terrorist organization back in 2015 and I think that we're still playing catch up now. I think that we need something that that does create a deterrence framework here. I think for a long time we thought that cyber war was going to be attacks on infrastructure, right? And and it is that sometimes. But there's a, a sense of like, you know, rules of engagement there. There's a sense that that sort of thing will not be tolerated. And so the kind of shift has been these adversaries who recognize that we have a fundamental democratic society with freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And so they can put stuff up on social media to reach American citizens directly. And we are so loath to take any of it down without being absolutely a thousand percent sure that it's inauthentic and manipulative particularly as they start to just launder and amplify real existing polarized American narratives. I think that is one of the huge problems here. Yeah, it's hard to see what the solution is because it's, again, it's, it's an asymmetric war because of the consequences of having an, an open society that builds a digital 
infrastructure that maximizes communication among free people who are governed by a Bill of Rights, at least in the in the U.S. And the bias, and I think the right bias, you know, at least up until an hour ago, is toward allowing speech, whatever it is, as long as it's not a direct call to violence. Let's say this just gets ten times worse, right? It, it doesn't stop, and even more resources are thrown at this, you know, by Russia and and others. Is there a way to block it fundamentally? I mean, what, like, you know, if, if Facebook decided, okay, well, anything coming from a, you know, IP address from any of these countries, does that stem the tide or is there just a, an easy workaround for that for anyone who wants to do this? No, it's, that's unfortunately, uh, you know, it's, it, I don't think it works. So there's a couple of reasons why, but, uh, you know, you can turn on a VPN and and again, the, one of the challenges here, uh, and the reason that I actually learned a lot from you know paying attention to the anti-vax groups back in the day, is that you see people come in and court favor with like the group mods and become influential voices within the community, right? And so one of the challenges, particularly with the evolution of this stuff, is that I think that you know they've lost a lot of their pages. That particular mo is kind of burned. You know, we know what to look for now. We know what they go for. We know how they do it. But there are these huge kind of cognitive vulnerabilities where people in groups, you see influential voices in there pushing people in particular directions because of a bias, because of a shared affinity, because of a political camaraderie. I think that there has to be some form of education. This is something that I've seen. You know, I had some time. I got invited to Stockholm and to Tallinn, so Sweden and Estonia this year where they've been dealing with foreign propaganda much more kind of in your face, much more directly for a long time, particularly Estonia, which has, I think, 25% of the population is Russian-speaking and, and receives its news from Russian media. And they are much more proactive about educating their citizens as to the, what propaganda is, what types of news are reliable. Even me saying what types of news are reliable, I'm sure there's some segment of people listening out there who are thinking like, well, the mainstream media is not reliable and the government's not reliable. And <laughs> so this is where just just saying the words media reliability in the U.S., it becomes like the trolls come out to tell you that, you know, you're a statist or you're, uh, you know, God knows what else. And, and you're and you're silencing the free press and or the, the you know, that citizen journalism is the future. And I understand I really do understand the media credibility problems. But at the same time, this lack of trust is the fundamental problem that I think we have here that I haven't seen in other countries that appear to have dealt with this better, like Sweden and Estonia, where the government is regularly communicating out very transparently, these are the sorts of propaganda attacks and influence campaigns you should be aware of. Do you think it really falls to each person to just ramp up their notion of digital hygiene and become a more intelligent consumer of information? There's no top-down remedy that can be relied upon? Well, I think that multi-stakeholderism can do something, right? I think that, again, you know, this is another suggestion that people are often deeply uncomfortable with, but I believe it works, which is information sharing. I think that the platforms have to be in communication with the government. In the post-Snowden era, that, you know, just saying that out loud was, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't say that, you know, we don't want the government spying on us or, you know, there was actually a DARPA program from 2012 to 2015. There's another thing where if you go back and read the news from the day, you'll see 
people who now are actually quite prominent voices speaking out about the Russian manipulation problem, saying, like, why do we have DARPA exploring social media and strategic communication, which was the name of the program? And it was specifically DARPA running things like bot detection challenges and and looking at mimetic warfare, the idea of mimetic propaganda and what, you know, what, what would happen when propaganda when memes became this vector for transmitting foreign propaganda. This was going on from 2012 to 2015. So again, there were parts of the government that were thinking quite far ahead on this, and they were receiving a whole lot of societal pushback because the idea that the government would be paying attention to this was creepy. The net effect was the creepy factor shut down the programs, and uh, you know, here we are. So Yeah, well, well, on the point you made about so many people losing their trust in the mainstream media and it being such an easy line that it's fake news. We really have to fight from that trench because, you know, as someone who has you know interacted with the mainstream media a fair amount and understands how they can get things wrong, and I even you know when you're directly involved in a news article and you you, you just have a first person experience of how things can be slanted against you or people you know, you can appreciate what the weird incentives are and how often even a publication like the New York Times gets things wrong or slightly wrong or at least publishes something that is overtly biased. And yet there's still a world of difference between what the New York Times is up to and some of these other websites and, and journals that are just shrieking their partisanship, you know, in every sentence. You can't compare the New York Times to Breitbart or to Alternet. And the fact that in the current moment politically, you know, you know, I hold Trump responsible for much of this, that those distinctions have just been flattened and it's just a some some kind of epistemological free-for-all where there are no facts or the facts are whatever you want them to be. And no one has any credibility beyond, you know, what they can cleverly put up on Instagram. I mean, it's just, we have to walk back from this precipice and acknowledge the the kind of the gradations of truth here and, uh, or accuracy. And the fact that we understand the incentives that govern this, right? We understand that the New York Times still has a lot to lose when they get things flagrantly wrong. And a partisan blog doesn't because it, it has a different audience and a different business model. And the fact that that's, that point's so hard to get across now, and it, I mean, because we have a president of the United States whose very presidency, to some degree, is reliant on obscuring that fact, that's one of the scariest features of this conversation. Well, I think that's true. And I think that you know, a lot of the conversation in the, you know, in the, the particularly 2016-2017 timeframe was about fake news, right? The, uh, there was this objection that there's no evidence that fake news convinces people of anything. I think that we have to change the frame of that conversation because it's not about believing in fake news. It's, it's these pages are geared to, these, these operations are geared to feed hatred and increase polarization. And I think that when we look at solutions for the societal, you know, this is, they're exploiting things that exist, right? And so we can't expect them not to exploit polarization and, and radicalization in our society if we're not doing anything to step back from that. Per your point, I don't think that we have a leader in the White House right now who's doing a very good job of walking people back to the idea that we are Americans, we share a culture, we share a history, we have more in common than, 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 than not. 
I think that we are unfortunately in a position where our leadership is doubling down on these epistemological divides, doubling down on the, you know, that was Kellyanne Conway's phrase, alternative facts, right? Mm. So doesn't that feel like something from forever to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, every, every, something 48 hours ago feels like forever <laughs> ago. It's just, it's a crazy relationship with the news cycle that we, we're all acclimated to. So it seems to me that this issue of information warfare, the issues we haven't ta- spoken about here, we just alluded to, but just, you know, the real world effects of hacking into our, you know, critical infrastructure. I mean, these issues are just, they have to be front and center in our politics and in our governance and certainly in the next presidential campaign. The next president of the United States who hopefully beats Trump, to be a plausible candidate for that office, you have to have something intelligent to say about this problem. Do you see any way of making this a more prominent concern in this next election cycle? I think that, yes, I think that there's going to be a lot more lawmakers who, we've already seen some recognize that social media regulation is a thing that is going to play in the next election. Right now, some of them are going about it in a very credible way, right? They're thinking about things like, as I alluded to in the very start of our conversation, the, the notion of consolidation of audiences, right? The idea of platforms with remarkable amounts of power that do decide what we see, that do shape the content that we engage with. So you see some of them going after things like antitrust, and that's been on both the left and the right, interestingly. You see bipartisan initiatives like the Honest Ads Act. There are politicians who are making this front and center part of what they're doing. Senator Warner is, is an exceptional one, though I don't think he's indicated he's going to run. I hope that we are able to see legislators who are pursuing regulation that gets at the problems that matter. Because we've also had a number of hearings that have been circuses, where, you know, the Diamond and Silk hearing, of course, comes to mind, where the, I believe it was House Judiciary Committee sat there and talked about, you know, the grievances of two YouTube, you know, bloggers who felt that they'd been unfairly downranked in some way by Facebook or others. I think Facebook apologized, but this, of course, was used as evidence of a you know, vast conservative bias. And so some of the, you know, what I felt like some, it was like bad faith, like they turned it into a political issue in a very bad faith kind of way, as opposed to going after some of the real issues, they turned it into like a victimization narrative. And and that was deeply disappointing, because then you're politicizing even this problem. And if we're politicizing this problem, which is a meta problem, I don't know how we get back down to the issues underpinning what makes it possible to run these operations. Yeah, I didn't pay that much attention to the, the Facebook hearings, but in reading the coverage, it, it was hard to ignore the sense that there was just a, a fundamental lack of candor from Facebook in particular on this, that there was just like that they were kind of holding out for as long as possible in deflecting scrutiny. Is that the sense of how they behave that you have? I mean, you're, you're much closer to this than I am. I wrote about this a little bit in their report because one of the things I was asked to do was look at what the data showed versus what the those who testified said. And there were some unfortunate discrepancies, I would say. You know, YouTube handed a data set over absent any real information, no engagement data, no nothing. It was just like here's some videos in a folder and the names of some channels and you know the email addresses associated with them. And something like 96% of the content, I think, targeted African-American audiences. 96% of the videos, 54% of the channels 
And yet they made a statement saying that there had never been any evidence of any particular segment of Americans being targeted by the Internet Research Agency on their platform. Oh, because they used a formal definition of the word targeting. That's, that's like, my targeting sense. Ads, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm reading this and I'm saying like, this is the most disingenuous. <laughs> I mean, come on. Anybody with eyes can see who they were going after. They might not have paid to do it, but they sure as hell were doing it. And that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, I just don't understand why that is the approach and not, yes, we have discovered this deeply disturbing factor about something that happened on our platform. We recognize that this is a problem and we are taking extreme steps to, to ensure that it never happens again. I saw the same thing with Cheryl Sandberg and her testimony saying that, you know, uh, in her written questions for the record, they asked, was there evidence that the Russians ran content aimed at preventing people or suppressing the vote, basically discouraging people from voting? And the response was something along the lines of like, well, it's not our place to make that judgment. And, you know, I, OK, let's assume for the moment that that's a, a good faith answer. The problem with it is that they are the first line of defense. So it is absolutely their responsibility to identify if there are actors on their platform trying to discourage people from voting because they have to detect that and shut it down or detect it and flag it or detect it and do whatever the hell it is that they're going to do with it. So the idea that the only way that we can ascertain whether don't vote or vote for Jill Stein, not Hillary, or this country isn't ours, is a voter suppression narrative. Like the idea that sophisticated researchers and, and government entities have to be the ones to make that determination. Like that, in my opinion, that's an abdication of responsibility. And that's another area where, you know, there has to be much more of a, yes, this happened. It was terrible. Now we're going to find a way to move forward from it. Yeah, there was also a fair amount of reporting on Facebook's internal efforts to ignore the, the Russian problem in particular. And I think there was some screaming match where Sandberg went after their head of security for having promoted this problem, you know, discussion of this problem to the board, you know, sort of behind her back. It just sounds like they've been dragged kicking and screaming into the current moment of acknowledging that this is a problem that has to be dealt with. I think that, um, you know, Alex, uh, Alex Damos, the chief security officer in that anecdote, of course, I know nothing about the inner workings of Facebook. I read the same story you did. He's really come out with a lot of proactive efforts thinking about, you know, he's at Stanford now thinking about like, OK, what can we do to facilitate relationships with researchers? What can we do? to improve conversations with governments, um, which I think is a you know, positive step. I do think it's the people who were close to this, who, you know, if we're being realistic, have the best understanding of what happened, how it happened, and where the gaps were. So I, I think that, you know, I've tried to move away from, you know, blatant pointed criticism and <laughs> more towards, uh, all right, this happened, you know, what do we do next? Where do we go from here? And uh, and that's been my sense of uh, where, you know, where a lot of uh, a lot of the lawmakers are also like less punitive punishment and more, OK, let's, you know, we've got to come up with some sort of solution here. And the platforms have to be full partners in the solution because they're the first line of defense. At minimum, it's an, it was an unforeseen consequence of building this technology that connects everybody I mean, with, with the best of intentions, you know, business models aside, you give everyone a window into everyone else's life and a direct line of communication to their brain and interesting things will happen and they won't always be good. We clearly haven't anticipated all the ways this can go wrong. You know, as we 
get to the end of our, our conversation here, is, is there anything you recommend people do or read or pay attention to or avoid in light of what you know about this problem? I think that, you know, the key takeaway for me is is the realization that, like, you are not immune, right? There's, there's um, I mean, I found the content funny as I was reading it. And if I was reading it in a different context and I didn't know it came from some Russian troll farm, would I have, would I have been shocked or scandalized? No. The content was largely innocuous. It wouldn't have really come down under any kind of terms of service aside from authenticity. And that's one of the key challenges. I think a lot of people, particularly, you know, on the left, they think, oh, this targeted, you know, stupid Trump supporters. I think our, our kind of exposure of the extent to which it targeted um, African-American communities has led to a lot of outrage. Uh, but I think that in some ways, it's good that people are finally paying attention to the realization that everyone was targeted with this. There was a left-leaning page that went off, you know, that had kind of fake women's march type events. There was intersectional feminist Instagram account. There were, you know, every secession movement you can think about, <laughs> Cal Exit, Brexit, Texit, you know. If, if you had an interest, like they had a page for you, you know, and, and that's where I think the recognition that that no one is immune to this stuff and that you do have to take that extra second, look at what you're sharing before you share it, you know, try to gauge like, what is this community? What is this page that I'm part of? The real challenge is that you don't want people to feel like they have to be chronic skeptics. That's not an enjoyable way to live life or, you know, be part of communities online. But I think that, uh, I think that Facebook was remarkable and that it really the idea that it was like this true name platform where everybody was who they said they were, I think in some ways, as someone who was, you know, on the internet when everybody still used aliases and was in sketchy AOL chat rooms, right? Facebook reduced a lot of that healthy skepticism to it. It made people much more trusting of, you know, the experience of, you know, who they were engaging with online. And I think that maybe there's a kind of a happy medium that's a not chronic skeptic, but not innately trustworthy either. I think people have to realize that these platforms are unfortunately ripe for manipulation right now. Now, it strikes me as one of the prices we're paying for having eroded the business model of journalism as fully as, as we have, because what we really need on the front lines here are legions of journalists who are well paid to spend their time vetting claims of fact. And there are a few papers that and magazines that still flourish that can do this, that can support long-form journalism where someone you know, spends months to vet a story and reports it deeply. But so much of what people experience as journalism is essentially just the blogosphere where you know, just things are, you know, they're essentially opinion pieces and confections of what people have found online was what the Huffington Post and similar websites have done to obfuscate the boundary between someone just blogging in their underwear and a deeply reported, you know, well-sourced news story that took, you know, weeks or even months to put together. I don't know what the, the numbers actually are in terms of kind of the health of journalism now, but ironically, Trump seems to have been pretty good for mainstream journalism. Like that, that is definitely one of the front lines in this war. I think that, you know, you raise something that's interesting from another standpoint, which is the idea of, of uh, curation on the internet, particularly as everybody consolidated onto this handful of platforms, 
curation became necessary because of the information glut, right? This is something that I think is also something that we as a society have never dealt with before. The idea that there is too much information, there is this abundance, this pro proliferation of information. In some ways, you know, the, the platforms encourage this. This was the idea of creating these little, you know, those little bars where we can log in. How do you feel? What do you think? Remember the olden days, everyone used to be like, I'm eating a sandwich, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the platforms became responsible for surfacing. You know, people didn't want to see 50, I, I'm eating a sandwich. They wanted to get to something good. And so this is how we came to have ranking algorithms, curatorial algorithms, trending algorithms, things that were designed to help us make sense of this information glut. The problem is that the things that they key off of are metrics that are so easily gamed that, the, that there is no accountability for surfacing things that would be considered reputable sources. And if you even suggest that maybe they should be surfacing things that are more reputable sources, you wind up circling the drain with these interminable you know, arguments about what is a reputable source. And we, we just get paralyzed in these, in, in these moments. And, and I think we've got to move out of that to get to you know, the point you're making, surfacing quality journalism, real facts, things that are more, uh, you know, where, where the publication has some accountability and it's not someone blogging in their underwear. Yeah. Uh, Renee, it's really been fascinating. Uh, wh where can people find you online? And uh, again, I'll, I will post a link to your report, but uh, give your Twitter handle or any other information you want people to have about you. Yeah, I am at no upside, N-O-U-P-S-I-D-E. And then uh, ReneeDiresta.com is where I usually uh, put my stuff. I write for Wired Ideas and and then try to put up my essays on ReneeDiresta.com. Well, it's really it's been an education, and uh, please uh, don't stop. We 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 clearly need you. So clone yourself. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>